Good to have you all here today. Good morning. Uh, the song we sang, Take Joy, O Lord, in what you hear. Isn't it amazing to think that He does? That, that He has joy because we've come today, because we've gathered here, because we can come into His presence and sing those songs to Him. It is a sweet sound in His ear. That blows me away to be able to start a day giving joy to God. We think about Him making us Bless him giving us joy, but we give joy back to him. That's a mind-boggling thought. It's, it's also a whole different sermon one day, <laughs> not the one we're going to talk about today. You know, John mentioned we are in week three of a series about the ways God uses people, in some ways expected, in other ways unexpected. And we've seen so far uh, two different cases of God using people. One was Elijah when Ron started the series two weeks ago, and then last week in the life of Joseph. And both of those two men would have nodded along with a phrase that the Apostle Paul wrote centuries after they lived, but it applied very much to their lives as well. I'd like us to read aloud Ephesians 2, verse 10. It's kind of the theme verse of this series. Would you read it with me? For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus, so we can do the good things He planned for us long ago. Friends, that verse matters because if you've fallen into the trap of thinking the Christian life is all about you getting your ticket to heaven and then waiting to get there, and in between not a whole lot is very important, if that's your trap, it's a shame. Because this verse says that God planned long ago for us to do some good things. That when we joined His family, we became part of His kingdom by faith in Christ, we became part of a, of a, of a mission team And what God is doing in this world in expanding that kingdom, He wants to do through us. And so the Christian life isn't a matter of waiting to go to heaven. It's a matter of discovering the cool things that God has planned long ago for us to be a part of. And I don't know exactly what your thing is, and you don't know what mine is, but the Christian life is a series of discoveries. What's my role in what God is trying to do? And we see in Scripture that that happens all the time. But we also see that at times, when people discover their role, it's a little daunting. It's even maybe a little frightening to them. We see it happen all over. I I see it happen today. In my previous church, I was in charge of the teams that our church sent out around the world to make much of Jesus in different places. And I'm thrilled that Heights does the same thing. Uh, In fact, we have teams right now in Brazil a Navajo reservation, and in Mexico, all serving Jesus by loving people. I think that's great. Uh, and, and some of those people I learned over the years of preparing those teams, some of them think, I, I think God wants me to do this. It's one of the cool things he's planned long ago for me to be part of. But it makes me a little, little nervous. I've never been there. I don't know if I'm going to do well. When that's their reaction to this tug of God on their heart, I, I, I was good with that. Because those people are going to pray. Those people are going to say, I can't, I need help. This is bigger than me. I worried about the people who said, yeah, I got this. Been there, done that. I can do this. I've done it before. Those people need a meltdown to happen sooner or later, and it might happen on the trip. So we always warned the team leaders, "Eh, keep an eye on this person. There's a little too much confidence there, okay? You're better off being a little bit overwhelmed. And in fact, I'm in that role right now, today, as I look ahead to this next week in my life. Because Thursday morning, very, very early, 2 a.m., I'm leaving for Phoenix to get on a plane. I'm going to meet uh, Elder Dan Stoddard in Amsterdam. And the two of us are going to fly down to Nairobi, Kenya, to spend a week training Kenyan pastors in how to prepare a message so it comes out of God's Word, not out of their own ideas. 
After that, we're going to fly on to Jordan and visit our partners there. And then I'm going to fly on to Czech Republic and visit partners there. It's going to be a two-week trip. Now, the Czech part and the Jordan part aren't overly intimidating to me. I've been to both those places and know most of the people I'm going to visit. I can't wait to see them. And I've lived in West Africa before, but I've been in and out of Kenya. I haven't spent much time there. I've never met these men. Dan has, and I'm glad for that. I've never used the material we're going to be teaching them. And I have hardly touched it at all because this week is really crazy. So I'm getting on the plane ready to go see, okay, God, what are you going to do? But it's a big deal. And I've got a little bit of that sense of, yikes, what is going to happen here? So we'd appreciate your prayer as we become one of those Heights teams this week that heads out around to do that. So I think it's normal at times when we get a glimpse of what God has in store for us, it can be a normal reaction to say, whoa, that's bigger than me. In fact, we see in the Bible that some of the people God used powerfully had very negative reactions when God first tapped on their shoulder. Moses spends two chapters trying to talk God out of the whole thing. No, you need somebody else, God. Yeah, for this, that, and the other reason, you've got the wrong guy. Then there's a prophet, Jeremiah, who wrote two books in the Old Testament and was used powerfully by God. He said, no, I'm way too young, God. Uh, You need somebody older, more mature, more experienced. Not me. I'm a little guy. I'm a young guy. And then the man we're going to look at today, when God tapped him on the shoulder and said, I've got a job for you, the cool thing I have planned for you is this project. He says, Lord, you're asking too much of me. And what we're going to learn through his story is this big idea today. God takes delight in doing the impossible through those who at first think it just can't be done. That's the story we're going to hear as we look at the life of a man named Gideon. His story is found in Judges chapters 6 and 7. Turn in your Bibles there with me if you would. If you don't have a Bible, slip your hand in the air. We've got folks walking the aisles who will be glad to gift you one that you're welcome to keep, by the way, as a gift from Heights. Judges is, if you're left-handed, you'll be happy today. We're on the left side of your Bible most of the time. Uh, Judges is the seventh book in the Old Testament. So go all the way back and count forward seven books and you'll find Judges. What is this book all about? Let me give you the, the big context of this period in Israel's history. It's one we don't talk about much, sadly, because there's some cool stuff in this book. And it's a period of about 300 years between the arrival of Israel in the Promised Land that came with the Exodus and the plagues and the Red Sea and pretty well-known part of the story. And then later on, when the kings of Israel begin coming along, King Saul, King David, we know those stories well. But in between, there's this 300-year period where God says, you, Israel, are going to be different. You're not going to have a king like all the other nations. I will be your king. This will be unusual. I'm not going to set up a royal family. I'm going to be your leader. And when needs arise, I'll tap on some people and use them in powerful ways. And and that's pretty much what God had in mind. But problems kicked in because of the unfaithfulness of Israel. They found themselves in a land surrounded by other people of all kinds of religious faiths, many of them, all of them idolatrous, and many of them with horrific practices in the worship of their false gods, up to and including sacrificing their children as an act of worship. And over the centuries, the people of Israel sadly turned their back on the real God who'd rescued them from Egypt and began worshiping all these false gods. And that happened a lot during these three centuries. And when it did, each time they fell into idolatry, 
God would get their attention and punish them by bringing some outside power to dominate them for a period of time. The people would suffer from this oppression. They'd cry out to God for help, which is a good thing. God would then raise up a person called a judge to rally the troops, to drive off the enemy, to tear down the false idols, restore the worship of the only God of the universe. And as long as that judge lived, things stayed pretty good. But then that judge would die and the whole cycle, sadly, would begin again as the people would fall back into unfaithfulness. The story we'll look at today is the fourth of those cycles that we find in the book of Judges. It is about the prophets, about a man named Gideon. Now, when we get to know him, here's what's going on. There's been a seven-year domination of Israel by a people, a nation named the Midianites. They were sort of a nomadic tribe that lived in their area. And for seven years, this army of Midianites would come sweeping through Israel, stealing the crops, corrupting the harvest, killing some Israelites, driving others up into shelter in the hills, and making life miserable for God's people. And sure enough, as they did each time in these cycles, they cried out for help. Initially, God said, well, this is happening because you didn't listen to me. But then God graciously says, I'm going to save you through a man. I'm going to call out a judge. And that judge is going to be my tool. In an act of kindness, God chooses a hero to come to the rescue of his people. That hero's name is Gideon. We're going to get to know him today. We're going to understand him. And I bet by the time we're done, we're going to relate to him. Because I think he's a lot like us in many ways. And although the story seems like it's about him... We're going to learn along the way that it's really about God, as much of the stories of the Bible are. It's about God's right, God's grace, and God's glory. Would you pray with me? We're going to ask him to teach us those things. Lord, thank you for this story to which we can relate. Thank you for your presence here. We pray you would speak through your word because your servants are listening. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's begin with this. God has the right to ask the impossible. That's what we learn from Judges chapter 6, verses 11 through 16. Follow with me as I read. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? You ever ask that question? Already we get this guy, don't we? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. Let's stop there for just a moment and talk about this interview. This is, we believe, actually a divine visit to Gideon. If you remember two weeks ago, Ron mentioned that this phrase, the angel of the Lord, is a unique phrase in Scripture. There seems to be a difference between the angel of the Lord and an angel from the Lord. And often, as you'll see in this case, it actually appears to be a visit of Jesus to the earth, to his people, prior to his birth. 
That shouldn't surprise us because he's always existed, the second person of the Trinity. And he comes down many times in the Old Testament and appears to, again, it's not certain, but we believe this is true. The angel of the Lord is a visit of Jesus to his people. And, and this is a divine visit to a man that we must recognize is an unlikely candidate. Think about what's happening when this visit takes place. Here's Gideon. He's threshing wheat in a wine press, it says. Now, I'm no farmer, but I read a lot, so I understand how these things are supposed to work. If you're a farmer, correct me if I'm wrong. But when you're threshing wheat, you've got a whole bunch of stuff that's part wheat, part chaff, and you throw it up in the air, and the breeze blows away the light chaff, and the wheat falls onto your mat, and that's your harvest. And that usually has to happen in the open where there's a good breeze. But if he did that in the open, he'd be vulnerable. The enemy is all around. They're going to see what he's doing. They'll know that he's got harvest. So he's hiding. He's doing it in a wine press, in a depression in the ground, because he's a little less visible. And it's harder, but that's okay, because he's trying to make a buck in kind of a black market sort of a setting. And at the same time, he's got all these questions in his mind. Understandable questions in light of what was happening to his people. Where's God? Why is God allowing this to happen? We hear these great stories about how powerful our God is and how he fights our enemies for us. What's happening now? Where is he? If he's so good, why does he leave us here to suffer? Understandable questions, but because of what he's doing and what he's thinking, we have to call him an unlikely candidate for hero of Israel, don't we? If God had formed a committee in heaven and said, your assignment is to go find a guy who I can use to save my people, chances are we would have put Gideon's resume at the bottom of the stack because he's not very impressive. So far, he's not even doing very well on the interview, is he? He's arguing with God. He's saying, yeah, you good words. Where are the actions? And he's hiding and he's, so, he's scared. He's an unlikely candidate. And then God gives him an unexpected mandate. First, he calls him mighty warrior. Now, you want a who-me moment in this dialogue? There it is right there. If I'm Gideon, I'm looking around saying, is there somebody else here? Me? Why do you call me mighty warrior? And that's a pretty good question, isn't it? Why do you think God would address him that way? He doesn't look like a mighty warrior. He doesn't sound like a mighty warrior. But that's what God calls him. Why is that? What could it be that God relates to his people, he relates to us, not on the basis of what we do and think and are today. He relates to us on the basis of the people he's shaping us to become. He's not limited like we are to what we think and feel. He knows what's coming. He knows what's happening. For instance, let me give you an example. Did you know the Bible calls you a saint? The word saint today, sadly, has been misshapen to be some club of super holy, super spiritual people. That's not what the New Testament does with it. All the epistles are addressed to the saints in Philippi, to the saints in Ephesus. It's all the Christ followers. We are saints. Do you feel saintly? If you look at your life this week, was that a saint's life? Were you saying to yourself, oh, I am really holy this week, boy. Look out for me. I don't think I could say that. But God calls us that because he's working on us, too, because he's forming us and shaping us and transforming us to be more and more holy like Jesus. That's what the word saint means, set apart, holy. And because he's so sure it's coming, 
Because it's his project. It's his mission. It's going to happen. He chooses to look at us and view us and address us as if that process is already complete. And that's what he's doing with Gideon. He's not saying, Gideon, you look and sound like a mighty warrior right now. No, he's saying you're going to become that because I'm here and I'm going to make you one. So he gives them that title and then he gives them this mandate. He says, you, Gideon, frightened person, black market, making a buck, wondering about me, you are going to save Israel. You've properly diagnosed the problem. You see that something needs to change. And I'm here to tell you, Gideon, you are the change agent. You are the one I will use. You go and save Israel. And Gideon responds in a way that probably won't surprise us. He says, God, you've got the wrong guy. Don't you understand? My family doesn't matter. We're insignificant in our area. And I'm the lowest in my own family. Lord, for that task, you need somebody famous. You need somebody respected. You need somebody gifted and talented. Somebody everyone looks up to. That's not me. I'm nobody. You're asking too much of a nobody. And then God says, you don't understand, Gideon. The victory is not about you. It's about me. I will be with you. And that's why you're going to win. He doesn't know it yet, but I will change you. And that's why you're going to win. So we've got this interview between God and this man, Gideon, who's got no confidence, he's got no courage, but he's the chosen man. And what lesson can we take away from this part of the story? Well, I believe we can realize and recognize and celebrate the fact that God isn't bound by human reasoning and human logic. Because this is not a logical interview. This is not even reasonable from a human perspective to ask Gideon to take on that task. But see, God has the right to ask the unreasonable. In fact, he has the right to ask the impossible. And he does it all through the Bible, doesn't he? See, a a few generations before this interview, when Moses was in charge and the people were wandering in the desert before they got to the promised land, they were thirsty. There was no water. And God said to Moses, I've got a solution. You see that staff in your hand? I want you to take it. I want you to walk up to that rock over there and I want you to smack it. And you're going to feel like an idiot. But water is going to come gushing out of that rock. And my people are going to drink. That's exactly what happened. Until it happened, you and I might say, but God, that's impossible. It's never been done before. And God would say, it's not impossible because I'm here. Later, this angel of the Lord would, as we mentioned, become born and take on human flesh and walk around among us. And do amazing things. And and one day, as a a human being in human form, that Jesus goes for a walk on the surface of a lake. That's already impossible. And he catches up to the boat the disciples are in. And they say, oh, you can't do that. And he says, relax, it's me, Jesus. And one of them, Peter, says, Lord, if it's you, tell me to walk towards you. Good old Peter. And Jesus calls his bluff. Yeah, Peter, now that you bring it up. Step out of the boat. Put your foot on the surface of the water and come to me. Now, we might have said, Lord, that's impossible. People don't walk on water. And if we did, he would say, I'm here. It's not impossible. A little while later, that same Jesus is going to stand in front of a tomb, a hole, a cave, with a rock rolled across it to hide the stench of a body that had been dead and buried for several days, the body of a close friend of his. 
And he's going to do something amazing. He's going to say, Lazarus, wake up. And someone's got to be thinking, this is impossible. But Jesus would say, as would Lazarus in five minutes, no, it's not impossible. Jesus is here. Friends, God has the right to ask the impossible because he's in the business of doing the impossible. And he chooses to do it through people who think it's impossible until they recognize, wait a minute, I serve a pretty powerful God. And Gideon is going to learn that in the midst of this story. In fact, he's going to learn that God takes delight in working the unexpected through people who don't suspect that they'll be a part of it. So we see, first of all, that God has the right to ask the impossible. Secondly, God has the grace to deal with our weaknesses. And the rest of this chapter, which we're not going to read aloud, it gets long, but you read it when you get home if you'd like. We find again that this man Gideon is a man who needs a lot of reassurance. God has chosen a weak tool. And Gideon right away, although it dawns on him in the midst of this interview, this is somebody special, this guy I'm talking to. It's not just anybody. And we're not sure where in the story it dawns on him that he's really having a divine conversation. We do know he runs off and says, wait here, I want to honor you. He goes and makes a meal and brings it back. And the angel of the Lord says, put that meal on a rock and then touches it with his staff. And that meal becomes a burnt offering, supernaturally ablaze. And the angel of the Lord disappears. And Gideon realizes, whoa, just what I thought. This is not a wandering pilgrim. I've just been talking to somebody amazingly significant. And that miracle, that reassurance, gives him the confidence to start the project. And he has to start with his own family. Good place to start. He realizes, my own family has, has compromised. My own family has idols uh, that God has commanded us to not worship, but we are. So he goes out with some amount of courage and tears down the, family, the idols of his family. But he's not too courageous because guess what? He does it at night. Baby steps, some progress, okay. He's t- but he didn't want anyone to see what he was doing. He knew it would cause quite a ruckus, and it did. But his dad defended him. And eventually, he does get the courage from the Spirit to say, Hey, Israel, gather around me. We're going to drive off the enemy. And in that moment, we find he has another crisis of confidence. He says, Am I really the one God wants to use? And, and, and he says, he prays. He says, God, I want you to tell me again this is really you. Do you understand this guy? Do you relate to this guy? I do. But he, he, he prays a prayer. So, God, I need another assurance. I need another miracle. I'm going to lay out a sheepskin overnight. I'm going to let this fleece lay here. And tomorrow morning, if it's you telling me to do this, I want the fleece to be wet and the ground around it to be dry. That will show me that it's really you. And the next morning he gets up and sure enough, he can wring water out of that sheepskin, but everything around is dry. And you would think that was enough. But he says, well, I'm not done yet. I need a little more reassurance. Let's make it harder on God. So he says, Lord, one more, one more miracle. I'm going to lay the fleece out again tonight. This time make the fleece be dry and the ground around to be soaked. And God, in his kindness, in his grace, does exactly what Gideon is asking. And he wakes up the next morning and says, wow, this really must be God. That's already pretty cool. That God knows the man he's chosen. He knows the re- need for reassurance to the point where... There's one more miraculous reassurance given that Gideon doesn't even ask for this time. Right before the battle that we'll talk about in a minute, 
God says, Gideon, if you're still afraid, and God knew he was, sneak down to the enemy camp tonight and listen. And he does. And God arranges for a conversation to happen within his earshot of two Midianite soldiers, one of whom had had a terrible dream the night before about chaos in the camp. And when he explains the dream to his buddy, the other guy says, whoa, that's, that's Gideon. That's the sword of the Lord. That's, we're doomed because there's this amazing warrior that God's going to use to kill us all. And Gideon says, that's me. They're talking about me. And he returns to camp reassured that God is here. God is active. Now, what do we do with this part of the story? Well, we, we recognize and, and glad that God knows the people he chooses. He's not unaware of our weak spots. And he's willing to meet us there and work with us. That's a good takeaway. I don't think this passage exists to teach us how to pray. I don't think this is there to show us when we wonder, we should be asking, a, we should pray what we call fleece prayers. Lord, if you want me to do X, then you do Y miraculously. Lord, if you want me to mow the lawn, then have the phone ring in two minutes. All right? All right? Mow the lawn. That was a California illustration, wasn't it? <laughs> doesn't work in Arizona. If you want me to rake the rocks, then have the phone ring <clears throat> in the next two minutes. We, we, we pray these fleece Have you prayed fleece prayers before? I, I did. Let me tell you about one in high school. And uh, I was in high school. I had a big crush on a girl. She was the girl I was sure I was going to spend the rest of my life with, because that's how high school boys think, right? I was sure she was the one, and I wanted God to confirm it. I was, I, I, I was confident he felt that way because I knew he wants what I want, because isn't that, isn't that what God is for? That, uh, no, it's not, but we think that way. And I remember praying one day. I said, Lord, if you want me to pursue her, and if she's the one, then this Wednesday night in Bible study, have her sit next to me in Bible study. It wasn't much of a miracle, right? It wasn't fleece. It was easier for him to do. And so I got there early because I knew if she was already there, it wasn't going to work. All right. So I got there six hours early and I, <laughs> I walked into the room and realized, okay, I'm going to make it even harder on God. I'm going to sit on the aisle seat. So there aren't two choices. There's one. So I sit there in the front row on the aisle and I'm waiting for her to come in. And, and sure enough, out of the corner of my eye, I see her enter. And I see her start coming down the center aisle. I'm going, hoo-hoo, here we go. And I'm waiting for the woman of my dreams to, to obey God's will by coming in front of me and sitting down next to me, and nothing happens. And I'm waiting, and nothing happens. And I finally have the courage to look off to my left, and she's sitting in the chair right across the aisle from me. What does that mean? Does that count? <laughs> Is that next to me? Is it not next to me? I mean, this is, this is not fair. And I was totally perplexed. I go, God, what are you trying to say? And I think he was saying, it's not that easy, Mike. <laughs> you don't get the shortcut prayer. This is not the idea, okay? And by the way, I wound up not pursuing her, and the woman I married was actually her best friend, which, which worked out pretty well, all right? Worked out, I think, all around. So, what do we... There are ways God gives us in Scripture to figure out what he wants us to do. First of all, Scripture's full of principles to go by. And where something's not as crystal clear because our situation doesn't fit in one of the categories that God gives us, he says there's wisdom in an abundance of counselors. So he gives us ways to figure out his will. And I don't think he means for us to come away saying, I'm going to pray lots of fleece prayers. Because there's no other place in Scripture where that's given to us as an example. So no, that's not the takeaway. But the takeaway is this reassurance, friends. When God picks someone 
for one of his tasks. He knows exactly who it is. He knows our strengths and our weaknesses. He's willing to work with us. He's not just a a, a professor giving us an assignment. Go write a five-page paper and bring it back and I'll grade it. No, he says, "I, I know you. I know you inside and out. I'm going to equip you and shape you and transform you so you do fit the task I'm giving to you. And so you can, counting on me, you will see the victory happen. So friends, I'm glad that God has the right to ask the impossible because it keeps us on our toes. I'm glad God has the grace to deal with our weaknesses because it shows us that he's a compassionate, loving God who is shaping us along the way. And finally, we can see that God gets the glory when the victory comes. And that's what this story is probably best known for. Because I mentioned to you that Gideon finally does make that call. Rally around me. Call to arms. We are going to drive off the Midianites. And no doubt to his great excitement, 32,000 soldiers respond. 32,000 Israelites say, we're with you. And he must be going, I'm in, I don't matter. No one knows me. And yet look at this incredible response. Friends, imagine if we'd had 32,000 people show up at Watson Lake the other day. Okay, the, the, the numbers that went, came were already amazing. But imagine, 32,000. We would have been, wow, God, look what you did. And if I'm Gideon, that's what I'm saying. God, thank you for all these resources. And God says, yeah, by the way, Gideon, you've got too many. Too many. Lord, we're, we're going we're to fight. We're going to war. No such thing as too many. God says, yeah, there is. You got too many. And in fact, he says to Gideon, I want you to make an announcement that anybody who's scared can go home. So I'm Gideon. I'm thinking, I'm scared. Can I go home? <laughs> everybody but Gideon who's scared can go home. And guess what? 22,000 people say, yeah, that's me. I'm only here because mom told me to come. <laughs> I got no desire to be here. You guys have a good war. I'm out of here. And he's left now with 10,000 soldiers. Two-thirds of his resources, gone. And God says, you still got too many. He says, take these 10,000 down to the creek and have them all get a drink. And those who drink in a certain way, put them on this side. If they drink in this other way, put them on that side. And over the course of the time, there's a whole bunch over here and just a few over here. And again, if I'm getting them thinking, I can lose these 300. God says, no, keep the 300. Send the 9,700 home. Gideon, you're going to war with 300 soldiers. Wow. What has God just done? He has stripped away 99% of this man's resources. He took an already impossible task and made it more impossible by, by showing him just how weak he is. And God said, I'm going to take these men and with them, with that 300, we are going to win. Friends, God went out of his way to show them just how weak they are. And we don't have to guess why he did that. Look at chapter 7, verse 2. God had a reason for this. In fact, oddly enough, he's protecting Israel in this moment. Look at chapter 7, verse 2. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands or Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved me. Friends, Remember when I said God knows our weaknesses? Well, here's one of them. Throughout history, the human weakness is pride, right? That's the the root cause of sin. That's where the whole thing began. 
And the more we say, look how good we are, the more we distance ourselves from God. The more we become independent, the more we say, I can do this. I don't need any help. And God knew his people very well. By the way, he's only talking to Gideon. We don't know what the rest of Israel is hearing. We don't even know if he's passed on. It's unclear. But we do know, like God says, if they win because of overwhelming numbers, when all is said and done, they will say, look what we can do when we're together. Look how strong we are when we're unified. Look what we can accomplish when we set out to work together. They pat themselves on the back and say, look how good we are. And that's not the end result God was shooting for. Not look how good we are, but look how amazing God is. Look how powerful and strong our God is. And that doesn't happen when you win with 32,000 men. And God protected them by removing that temptation and putting them in an impossible situation with not enough resources. So when the end came, they wouldn't be tempted to say, man, are we good? Now they would say, man, is God good or what? Which is, by the way, exactly what would happen. God had those 300 men divided into three squads. They surrounded the enemy at night. That smaller group could easily get around at night. Each man had a trumpet and a torch and a a clay pot covering the torch. At the signal that Gideon gave, all the trumpets were blown, all the pots were broken, the torches sprang aflame, and the Midianite army wakes up in the middle of the night with what seems to be enemy forces all around them. Confusion reigns, chaos in the camp. They begin fighting among themselves, and they flee. And Israel wins the battle. The bad guys are driven off. Gideon is a mighty warrior. He didn't start that way, but he wound up that way because he served a mighty God who knew exactly how the victory needed to come. So friends, God went out of his way to show Gideon the value of him seeing the task as overwhelming, even seeing it as impossible. Because when he saw that in his own strength he couldn't do what God was calling him to do, God says, now we're ready to go to work. He had to learn that. The Apostle Paul had to learn that, in fact. Turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Centuries later, the same principle becomes important to this powerful servant of Christ, this man who planted churches all across the Roman Empire, this man who wrote much of the New Testament, this man who, like any other person, would be tempted to say, wow, look what I've done. Isn't God lucky to have me? And yet, God had to show him. Now, you're weak too, Paul. So God allowed him to have something, a little obscure problem that Paul just calls the thorn in the flesh. There's a lot of speculation of what that actually was. We don't really know, frankly, and it probably doesn't matter, or we would know. But here's what happens as Paul realizes, I've got this part of my life I don't like. I wouldn't choose this to be in my life. In fact, I want it to go away. Three times, verse 8 says, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses. That's an odd phrase, isn't it? We boast about our strengths. We boast about how smart we are and how good we are. He says, no, I boast about my weaknesses. Why? So that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. Here it comes now. For when I am weak, then I am what? 
strong. Isn't that an amazing phrase? When I'm weak, I'm strong. God had to bring Paul to that realization by allowing this issue, this problem to fester and to remain. And God said no to multiple prayers to take it away. He said, Paul, you need this. You need, like Gideon needed, to know that it's not a bad thing to feel weak. It's even a good thing to feel like the task that I'm giving you is so big and your resources are so small that there's no way you can win. There's no way you can succeed because when you realize that, God says, that's when I'm ready to work through you. Now, friends, I think we all understand this man. In fact, I imagine we all see ourselves in his life. When I prayed this morning for this sermon and for all of you as we started the day, I prayed with the prayer group over in the corner. I prayed, I said, Lord, the room's going to be full of Gideons today, including the guy preaching. Because each one of us, no doubt, has tasks in our lives that seem bigger than we are. And there's times we say, God, you're asking too much of me. I don't know what yours is. I know what it might be. Because God is asking you things that seem unreasonable or impossible. You might be saying, God, I can't live with this illness. I can't live with this pain. I can't walk this path of medical challenge in my life. You're asking too much if you want me to handle that. God, we might be saying, I can't live without that person I just lost. Maybe through a breakup, maybe through a death. There's someone missing in your life. And you're saying, God, if you want me to go on with that person gone, you're asking too much of me. I'm working right now with three families who have loved ones in hospice care. And two days ago, I went to a home that had just lost a husband and a dad and a grandfather suddenly and unexpectedly. And they were adjusting to this hole in their lives. God, you're asking too much of me. I don't have the resources to walk this path without that person. You might be saying to yourself or to him, God, I, I can't take on the role you're asking me to. I can't raise a kid. I can't even take care of myself. You want me to be a mom? You want me to be a dad? You want me to raise a special needs child? Really? Me? Don't you know me? Don't you know how weak I am? That's the role you want me to play? You want me to be a husband or a wife or you want me to step into a new role in my work that's just overwhelming? God, you're asking more than I have in me to succeed. Maybe yours is, God, I, I can't be alone. I didn't choose to be alone. I don't want to be alone. But I'm alone. God, you're asking more of me than I can give. Last night, a lady came up to me after the sermon and said, this week is the, next, is the six month anniversary of my husband's death. And in the last weeks of his life, I was so eager for his sake for this to end because he was in so much pain. But I was dreading for my sake the day after when I'd wake up alone and face a new kind of life I never would have chosen. But she said, Pastor Mike, I can't tell you how wonderful it's been to see God walk me through this. And I, ooh, I got goosebumps telling you the story. I asked her permission to use the story here today, hoping it would bring encouragement to someone who's in the same role. Maybe your hesitation is before some ministry role, ministry task. You feel like God's tugging on you to go on one of these teams 
to make much of Jesus somewhere else. Maybe it's here in town. Maybe it's here in our own church. Life group leadership, children's ministry, youth work, outreach into the community or into your workplace. Lord, really me? Don't you know? I can't do that. Friends, I think whatever task is in front of you, if it's God's task for you, if it's overwhelming, beyond daunting, and it's scary, and you're saying, I don't have the resources, and even in moments of frustration, God, you're asking too much. I think God says, you understand that you can't do this by yourself. Good. Now let's get started. I believe that's the message of Gideon. And I believe we can leave here with great confidence that the big idea can be our big idea. That God takes delight in doing the impossible through those who at first think it just can't be done. You might start with why me? Who me? But it can end with, God, look what you did. You alone could do that. You alone get the glory. And thanks for letting me be part of it. Let's pray for that together. God, this story is so clear and we thank you for it. Your power is so obvious and so needed and we're grateful for that. Thank you for the kind of God you are. And yes, thank you for the overwhelming tasks you put before us. Help us, Lord, to walk them with incredible dependence on you so that we can, when the victory comes, give you all the glory you deserve. And all the Gideons in the room said, Amen. Amen.